Hey, good evening everybody. We are commencing Atwood Unleashed 72 Part 2. And tonight's guests are going to be Lucia Osborne Crowley, who's been covering the Epstein and Maxwell cases. She's going to be focusing her time on whether the victims' lawyers were acting in good faith, speaking about their relationship with a certain former president called Bill Clinton. <laughs> Talking openly about what she thinks went wrong in Maxwell's trial, why little evidence was used in the trial, and why only four out of 150 survivors were heard. Then, we have got a guest that's been requested quite a lot, called Max Egan from The Crow House. Australian writer speaking about the contentious Great Reset, telling us why he thinks civilization is changing and will never be the same again. Then we're welcoming Richard Grove, American conceptual artist and forensic historian, who frames his groundbreaking research into epic artistic representations to educate his audience. Tonight, we're gonna to be diving into 9-11 with Richard and the things he witnessed that he wasn't supposed to witness. He's got a YouTube channel, Grand Theft World Podcast, with more than 40,000 subs on YouTube. So, hope you enjoyed the earlier section. I'm going to see if we can bring Lucia in right now. Let's see if she is available. Huge thank you to everyone presently in the chat. Let's have a look. We've got Matthew, Rach, Michelle, Verity, Lee, KD, Ash, who does exist and is not a hologram. And Gradders. I think that's Stu Gradders. <laughs> All right, so let's go back. Lucia. Hello. Hello, how are you? Yeah, doing great, Lucia. How about yourself? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. Oh, well, thank you for coming on because this is the case we want to discuss, but we are banned from discussing on most of the bloody platforms exactly it's a real it's a real problem and it makes me very angry um and so yeah i'm i'm so pleased that you guys had had juliet bryant on um and and that she was able to share her story on here um and so yeah i'm i i thank you for that yeah juliet was fantastic she filled in some gaps especially on what we knew about good old bill clinton so that was right. Yeah, we were really honoured to have her on, you know, as she spent, what was it, two years with them? And she heard Clinton on the phone constantly versus yeah. his official response, whereby he hardly, you know, knew them, went on the flight, you know. Oh, what a disgusting character. Absolutely. And and both Juliet and Sarah, who I worked with on this most recent story, are just so incredibly brave um, and uh, are trying so hard to get the truth out there, you know, and... Um, there, there are so many institutions, the media included, um, that are kind of stopping that from happening, um, despite um, how brave and forthcoming survivors like Sarah and Juliet are. So I'm just really honored to work with them. So Lucy, what brought you to the Epstein case? That's a great question. So um, I trained as a lawyer um, and I worked in law for a few years and then I became a legal journalist um, as well as kind of an investigative journalist. Um, and I'd been interested in this case um, for a very long time. 
from, uh, for, for personal reasons as well, I've written two books about um, myself being uh, sexually abused as a child uh, in a semi-similar. Oh, looks like the pictures. Oh, internet. I think uh, we've got a bit of freeze framing going on here. Uh, let's see what's going on. Oh, you've come back. You've come back. We're back. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Please keep going. Oh, dear. So this is, I tested my internet so many times and this always happens that when you test it. It's yeah. When, once you get live, anything can happen. And, and the forces that, you know, the, the forces of evil constantly work against us at moments like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm very interested in this topic from a from a personal perspective, um, and I'm a legal affairs reporter, and I had been following the case um, through Julie Brown's reporting. She's a reporter at the Miami Herald who was kind of at the forefront of a lot of this. Um, and then I was following very, very closely. Um, as someone who's trained as a lawyer, I looked very closely at, at the reporting on Jeffrey Epstein's sweetheart deal back in 2007, 2008. And I found that so alarming um, as a lawyer and as a journalist. Um, so I was following very closely when he was finally rearrested. And then, can of I, course, could I just could I just pause you for one moment? Then, what what was your interpretation of Acosta's role in the sweetheart deal? Well, it seems it does seem very suspicious to me. I mean, I, I can't. You know, it's really hard to overstate just how unusual that sweetheart deal is. We're we're talking about a registered sex offender um, and we're talking about someone who pled guilty um, to sexually abusing underage girls and and then we're talking about a federal government official who agreed to let him plead down to what was essentially a prostitution charge and so you know that is a completely different thing than the sexual abuse of, of a minor um, and so you know, as someone who, who works in and around the law a lot, it, it, it's hard to shock me. But but this is really, this this kind of miscarriage of justice is really, really, really shocking. Um, and Acosta, you know, is, is the person who I think should be held responsible for that because he was in charge. And he has since said that, that he was told that Epstein uh, was an asset um, and so that he should go easy on him. Um, so I think there's a lot more we need to know about what was going on behind the scenes there. Um, but I do think, I mean, I personally think that if that Acosta should be held responsible for that deal and all the crimes that Epstein committed after 2008, because he was allowed back out into the world and he continued offending. And, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to overstate just how unjust that is. You probably got promoted. That's usually what happens in these cases. Oh, yeah. All right, so that that you know the sweetheart deal got you interested, and then what what after that maintained your interest? So then Jeffrey Epstein died in jail, um, and you know I just felt so strongly for the survivors when that happened because when he was finally rearrested, it seemed like maybe there was some hope um, for some for some real sense of justice or closure, um, and then you know regardless of the circumstances and again I, I hope that um, myself and other reporters can over time find out much more about what happened around his death but whatever did happen you know he evaded justice once again 
Um, and then, of course, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. So, so when that happened, I made a decision. I went to my agent um, and I said, I want my next book to be about the Ghislaine Maxwell trial because um, Jeffrey Epstein's dead. They have arrested her and, you know, it looks like this will finally get to trial in one form or another. Um, and this has to be covered closely because, you know, this is a 30-year sexual abuse operation for which no one has been held accountable. And, and it's something that's very, very complex. There's lots of really complex grooming and coercive control as well as the sexual abuse and trafficking. And, and I just, it, it occurred to me as soon as Maxwell was arrested that this would, would be a kind of a trial of the century and, and that I wanted to be there and that I wanted it to be what my next book was gonna be about. Because I think, you know, as someone who covers trials all day, every day, there's there's some things that you can't do with kind of daily journalism right that you can't do just with the everyday headlines of keeping people updated about what's happened in court that day you know I really wanted to dedicate a book to it to to really kind of dig into what happened here and why it has taken the best part of three decades for one single person to be put on trial for a, a criminal conspiracy that involved a lot of people so you quite rightly described it as the trial of the century, but why wasn't it the media event of the century and the investigation of the century? Why weren't the people above Epstein unearthed? Yeah, and you know, this is something I am still trying to ask myself and still trying to find answers for because it, it really was, and I'm sure everyone who was paying attention noticed this, it, it the attention it was given uh, was was not um, in keeping with the degree of criminality and the amount of, of lives that were damaged and ruined by these crimes. Um, so there wasn't a lot of um, media coverage. I mean, I was there with, with other reporters and there were people who were covering it. Um, but there were also certain publications that were noticeably absent or that or that weren't covering every day of the trial. And that I find very hard to understand because, you know, this is a huge, huge sex trafficking ring that, um, you know, that went unpunished for a very, very long time. And I can't see why it could be the case that that there was anything more important to, to be covering at that time. Um, and another part of that that kind of fed into that was that the scope of the Maxwell trial was actually very limited. Um, so, you know, we know uh, from victims' testimonies, people who've come forward to the press outside of the trial and within the trial, that, uh, that this went on for, for decades and that there were many, many, many people involved. But the, the federal case that was brought against Ghislaine Maxwell was actually quite narrow. So um, it only spanned 1994 to 2001. Um, there were only four victims who testified. Um, and the charge, some of the charges were quite minor. And so, you know, just compare, I, I'm, and, I, and I don't want to underplay the fact that it is a huge, huge thing that Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted and that, you know, someone has been held accountable for this. But I do think it's really important to, to kind of keep ourselves aware of the fact that even what she was held accountable for is really the tip of the iceberg as far as what my reporting tells me and as far as what what victims have told me and you know i think that's a real problem because i think a lot of people would like that trial to have been kind of the way to 
for everyone to wash our hands of this sex trafficking operation and say, case closed, you know, we don't have to look at this squarely anymore. We don't have to deal with, with how much harm was caused. Um, and, you know, I don't want to let that happen because what we heard at trial is not even the half of it. And I think, you know, I don't know what went on, but uh, the investigation and the amount of witnesses that testified, it just wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't as comprehensive as, as I felt it should have been. So we've had a few questions coming from some of the viewers. Ray J is what wants your thoughts on any relevance in the fact it was the ex-FBI's chief daughter that was the prosecutor. Was this to minimise information getting out? Well, this is definitely something that was talked about a lot at trial. So um, the most prominent prosecutor is Maureen Comey, um, who is um, James Comey's daughter. Um, so, uh, you know, and it's it's hard to, to speculate because it's, you know, it's it's hard to know. And, and with my reporting so far, you know, I don't know exactly what went on, but I do think that that it seems like a lot of information was held back. Um, and there are a lot of different theories about why that might be, um, you know, because this was such a long standing sexual abuse operation. And as far as my reporting tells me, involved some very, very, very powerful people. Um, and, you know, it is very possible that the government doesn't want all of that out on the public record and that this was kept uh, quite limited in order to to kind of yeah keep keep the scope quite narrow of, of what the public heard and as I said use it as a way to kind of uh, create a false sense of closure and kind of say this is over now nothing to see here you know we don't need any more information because uh, a person has been held accountable um, but you know that that doesn't mean as much when when we, what we we witnessed a trial that really didn't tell us everything and, and that we really, anyone who was there, all, all the people that I went through that trial with, we all had this same feeling, which was that, you know, it was just, it was just strange how, how much they limited the evidence that they presented. So there was a lot of powerful people listed in the black book. Which of those powerful people do you think were participating in this heinous trafficking ring? Well, it's very, very hard to say. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I uh, am trying to corroborate at the moment um, that I can't speak about yet. Um, but, you know, there are there are a lot of people who I believe were involved and who have not um, in any way been held accountable yet. And I think, you know, one of the amazing things about Juliet is that she was willing to go on the record with me as she was with you, Sean, um, uh, in my story this week to say that, that she met Bill Clinton when she met Epstein, that, that they were together, um, that they were together at this intimate lunch um, and that she saw him several times. Now, that is hugely significant because, you know, as you said at the beginning, uh, we know he's on the flight logs, but he has always um, tried to maintain some distance from Epstein. Um, but, you know, Juliet is someone who was there and she's telling us that she met him um, and that Bill Clinton being there is part of the reason that she felt that Jeffrey Epstein was someone that she could trust when he said, I'm going to help you. Because, you know, who wouldn't feel that way when the former president of the United States is is there and being a kind of 
one of a very small group of people with Jeffrey Epstein. So I think, you know, the fact that we have that that testimony from Juliet and that she's willing to say that is is so important because, you know, we really can't escape the idea that he did give Epstein credibility and the fact that he was there ready to shake hands with these young girls when they met Epstein and, and ready to kind of be the president and, and give this whole operation credibility. I mean, that demands accountability in my eyes. Um, you know, just, just the fact of, of him being there and, and, giving Epstein credibility in that way. I think it's remarkable that he hasn't been made to answer for that yet. And, and I really want that to happen. And I think uh, Juliet going on the record and, and speaking about that is a huge part of that. Um, and then, you know, we, we had names that were in, in the black book and read out on the flight, flight records at trial, who also, as far as I can tell, um, haven't been interviewed by the FBI, um, haven't been pressed by the media um, particularly hard. So, you know, that's what I, so my my big aim in this project, my next kind of, in this book and a couple of other investigative projects that I'm doing is, is to try and find out who, exactly who those clients were that these girls were trafficked to and to prove it and, and to make sure that those people are held accountable at some point because so far not a single client um, that, that these abuse victims were, were trafficked to has been held accountable. So Epstein suicided, Jean-Luc Brunel suicided, Hoffenberg dead last week. Yeah. What do you think has kept Maxwell alive? There's a theory that she cut some kind of deal with the Clinton crime family to not you know, raise any of the information that she was privy to, mm -hmm. uh, whereby she she's already in this minimum camp now doing yoga and playing tennis and yeah. the, there's the probability that she's going to get Bill Cosby'd out at some point when the media has died down. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is a really, really interesting question. And I think um, the question of Elaine Maxwell's closeness with the Clintons is one that... Um, really needs to be examined and um, I have a, a friend who's an investigative uh, journalist who's looking at this and you know I know that that she's going to do an excellent job um, and you know I, I do think it's it's very possible um, that you know and again because because of what we know from Juliet because we know that there was definitely a close personal relationship between Bill Clinton, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell um, you know, that there, that there could be something going on here that is keeping her protected and stopping her from naming names uh, because there are very, again, very powerful people who have a very vested interest in, in her not doing that. And, and of course, in this kind of investigation, what you'd expect, you know, as, as a legal reporter, as someone who covers this stuff a lot, what you'd expect is that someone in her position would would be being asked to give up co-conspirators in order to kind of reduce her sentence or, you know, something like that. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I hoped that something like that might happen and that, and that she might be able to give information about other co-conspirators. Um, and that hasn't happened. Um, and, you know, that is a bit suspicious to me. Um, and so maybe there is um, something that's going on a, a deal that she's made um, with 
any of the various powerful people that she knows that that is kind of keeping her protected from that. I've got a question come in from Matthew. Do you have any views about the 1994 Met Police investigation into Maxwell allegedly running a London brothel and the recently shelved Met Police investigation in London also into the London activities of Epstein? So I'll start with the latter. Um, the, I was very, very disappointed to see uh, the headline a few weeks ago that the Met has decided uh, not to investigate um, uh, any activities any crimes committed by Epstein in London, because of course we know um, that Ghislaine Maxwell's uh, townhouse in Belgravia in London um, was a hugely important um, site for this uh, sex trafficking operation. Um, we know that she brought girls there when she first began to, to groom them. There was uh, a woman who testified at trial under the pseudonym Kate, um, who was brought to Ghislaine Maxwell's uh, London townhouse um, and that's how the grooming process started. Um, and we also we also know that the the photo of Virginia Jeffrey with Prince Andrew um, was taken uh, in the UK. So um, I was extremely disappointed to see that uh, the UK police aren't investigating that because it seems very clear from what we heard at trial that crimes were committed in this jurisdiction. Um, and you know. <sighs> The other thing that is really hard to understand about this is that because we have had a criminal trial um, and this evidence has come out, there has been testimony, at, for example, you know, what I just said about Kate, she gave testimony about being in London with Maxwell and with Epstein and being sexually abused in London. You know, that's now on the public record that those crimes were committed in this jurisdiction. So it should be very easy for the police to take that and you know, run their own investigation and bring charges here for the crimes that were committed here, um, because of course, in the in the um, U.S. trial, that testimony was only given um, to prove the conspiracy charges and the trafficking charges, i.e., that victims were crossing were being forced to cross state lines for the purpose of sexual abuse. There, you know, there's been no charges brought for the actual sexual abuse that happened in the U.K. Um, and it just, it seems to me that it would have been very easy for the Met to investigate that because, because they had all of this evidence that's already in the public record and that's already been tested at trial and that's already resulted in a conviction. You know, so the jury believed Kate's testimony about what happened in London. So it should be very easy for the Met to investigate that and to bring charges based on, you know, crimes that happened here. So. You know that makes me very upset, and I'm and uh, I've started a process of of trying to investigate that and and do some freedom of information requests and basically just try and figure out why uh, why on earth that investigation was dropped. Um, and I have to say I don't know that much about the 1994 um, investigation against Maxwell, so I probably shouldn't say much about that because I'll probably be misleading people if I do. Okay, so Matthew's also wondering your, about your thoughts on Hoffenberg's recent death. Yes, well, um, so for, for those who don't know, Hoffenberg was someone that um, Jeffrey Epstein conspired with uh, quite early in, in Jeffrey Epstein's kind of criminal career um, in a, a financial scam, basically. 
and they were involved with each other in uh, kind of swindling money from people for a very long time. Um, and uh, he's recently been been found dead. And again, um, as as you mentioned, Sean uh, Jean Luc Brunel, who is one of the only other people who has come anywhere near uh, being brought to justice for his role in this um, sex trafficking operation, uh, was also found dead um, earlier this year. As of course uh, was Jeffrey Epstein. So, you know, it it does seem that a lot of people who are involved in this um, are are winding up dead and are evading justice in that way. And it's just, you know, it seems to me that so much of this horrific, heinous crime ring was about these people hiding in plain sight and truly believing that they were powerful enough to to get away with this um, back when they were doing it. And and they're now realising that, you know, we live in a different world and, and I'm really hopeful that, you know, it's not the case anymore that they can get away with this. Um, and so, you know, we we keep we, people people keep winding up uh, evading justice by by winding up dead. And so, you know, that's my that's my take on it. And, but of course, there's also very suspicious circumstances around uh, at, at least two of these deaths. So it's hard to know exactly what happened. Definitely. All right, you got another question that's come in. Let me just pull it up real quick. And it is from Welch Nugget. Um, can you speculate what Maxwell has in her back pocket <laughs> keep, that is keeping her alive? Well, that's a great question because I think the answer to that is a, a whole lot. I think based on what we heard at trial, uh, I think Gillian Maxwell knows almost everything there is to know about uh, what went on um, in this in this sexual abuse ring um i think she uh so she was what prosecutors called the lady of the house of of all of his houses she was kind of in charge of a lot of the admin but also um the story that has come out uh is that jeffrey epstein um he he wasn't very good at socializing um but, but galaine maxwell is incredibly charming and and we saw this from her at trial she was kind of engaging with journalists and the way she would speak to her lawyers. And she, she has this thing and she knows that she's very affable and she's very personable. And so that's why she was his kind of recruiter. That's why she went out to, to meet young girls and make it seem like a legitimate uh, enterprise. And so because that was her role uh, throughout the whole thing, I do think that very little uh, happened in this sex trafficking ring that Ghislaine Maxwell didn't know about. I think that she was, uh, and you know, this is just my interpretation of the evidence at trial, um, and also what I know from my own reporting. Uh, you know, I, I think that she was really key in making connections between people. Um, so, if there's anyone who knows all of the people who came into this orbit and how each person came into the orbit, I think it's Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, so, I think she has a lot of information in her back pocket. So Anexus has asked whether you think Bill Clinton was a recruiter of high profile clients and not just a participant. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic question and, and something that I'm really dedicated to trying to find out more about um, because Bill Clinton has done such a good job of, of not answering any questions about what his role was um, in this. 
Um, I think what we've now got on the record about um, him being there when victims like Juliet met Epstein, I think now there is no question, um, you know, that, that he was present and therefore, to my mind at least, he must have known um, what was going on here um, or at least must have been trying to be willfully ignorant about what was going on. Um, that's what I think um, we've been able to prove so far. So then the next step is is this exact question, is, is how much further than that did it go? Um, and and this question of whether whether he was bringing in other high profile men into the ring is a really good question. And and you know I, I I don't want to speculate yet because I can't prove it. But you know I do think that's the next step that that we need to find out and and that we need to make sure that if that was happening. Um, and you know again it's hard to overstate how especially at that time we're talking. 2001, 2002, one of the most beloved people on earth, you know, really a very, very, very popular president and and public figure. Um, so if anyone could have the power to bring in um, new clients into this operation, you know, it would be Bill Clinton. Um, so I don't want to say that I definitely think he was doing that, but I do think from what we've now been able to prove and what we've got on the record, I think it's hard to say that he couldn't have known what was going on, at least. Um, and that from there, you know, we just have to we have to keep going and keep investigating and trying to find out exactly what role he had in it, other than being aware. Well, at the very least, we know that Epstein's association with Prince Andrew enabled him to recruit and conspire with more people, and you know that that was a big fish for him. So I imagine mm -hmm. the same philosophy was adopted with Bill Clinton being such a big fish, especially over there in America? Absolutely. And, you know, that's why it's so powerful to to hear Juliet speak about about what it was like to meet Epstein for the first time when, when Bill Clinton was there and when he shook her hand. And, you know, that it's, you know, you're meeting one of the most powerful people on earth. Um, so, of course, that you, they're going to lend credibility to whatever situation they're involved in, you know, because that's how that's how power works. Um, and so I do think it seemed that, you know, a big part of Epstein's strategy was to use people like Bill Clinton and potentially Prince Andrew and all the other kind of powerful people that that he uh, had in his circle to kind of lend credibility um, to what was a, a criminal operation. All right, so we've just got a couple of minutes left, and you believe that some of the lawyers for the survivors were not properly portraying the full story. Um, while you begin to answer that, I'm just going to close my window because there's a bit of a windstorm coming in, so <laughs> take, take it away. Great. Um, yeah, so the story I published um, this week uh, uh, was about um, one of, the Epstein survivors, Sarah Ransom, who has filed a formal grievance against her former attorney, David Boys. So David Boys has represented a number of Epstein victims um, throughout the last 10 years. Um, and, and, and Sarah's formal grievance, basically, it, it says a number of things, um, all of which adds up to that, that she believes that he wasn't acting in her best interest when he represented her. So he represented her in a civil case against Jeffrey Epstein when he was still alive um, and Ghislaine Maxwell and three other alleged co-conspirators. And they settled that case. 
Um, but there were there are a number of decisions that were made in her representation that that she thinks um, and and that you know are corroborated uh, that that make it seem like it, it's possible that uh, it, it, these lawyers weren't acting in her best interest. And the question she wants answered is is why. And and a big part of that is that um, there's been a photo that's resur resurfaced recently of David Boys, um, Sarah's former lawyer sitting at dinner with Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton and Harvey Weinstein um, immediately after um, the loss, uh, Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. So it was reported that that very intimate dinner was um, a consolation dinner when she lost the election. So if David Boys is so close to them that, that he's someone they choose to have dinner with when she loses the election, you know, that's quite a, that's quite a personal, you know, that feels like a very personal connection. Um, so part of Sarah's formal complaint was, you know, uh, she because she has said um, that Bill Clinton used to use, sorry, Jeffrey Epstein used to use his friendship with Bill Clinton all the time in in conversation with her to kind of make himself seem really legitimate. So she said, you know, Bill Clinton is someone who I consider to be involved in this. And my lawyer is sitting at dinner with him, and I don't feel comfortable about that. That's that's a you know that's a conflict of interest. So um, she has filed that uh, complaint um, with the New York Attorney Grievance Committee, um, and so we might see uh, what what will likely happen next is an investigation um, into that complaint and possibly uh, that firm's representation of of other victims. And you know it's very hard. It's it's very very complicated. Um, but, you know, there are lawyers who've represented a lot of these victims and, and I've spoken to victims who, who would like to re remain anonymous and off the record who also feel that they weren't represented in a way that, that really kind of uh, was, was best for them and, and was best for justice because what they want is the truth to come out. That's what they want more than anything. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of them are reflecting on these civil cases and these settlements and, and feeling like maybe that wasn't um, kind of what, what their lawyers had in mind. Well, very thoroughly answered. Brilliant. Thank you, Lucia. I'm going to, uh, you know, urge people to find you on Twitter because more questions have come in, but we've run out of time. And to get the book, the link, the Amazon link is there in the chat. We'll put it, if, wherever this goes out, we'll put it in the video description um if you want to just tell people who because some people might listen audio only where they can find you in the book yeah absolutely so um the book is coming out uh next summer it's called witness the trial of the century um and uh yeah that will be coming out next year you can find me on twitter i'm my handle is at lucia oc underscore um which is very embarrassingly because i made another twitter account without the underscore um, when I was 18 and I can't figure out how to delete it. So <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to put the underscore under there. Otherwise you'll end up with my 18 year old Twitter account. Uh, and you can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is at Lucia OC. So just at L-U-C-I-A and then OC. All right. Huge thank you for coming on. Have a great thank rest you. of your day. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 All right, we're going to bring Max Eigen on next. And let me see where he is in the chat. Please bear with me. 
we're just let's have a look he's on the max according to ash right let's have a look max 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 all right do, 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 do. I'm just scrolling through the people. Max. Yep, doesn't look like he's logged on yet, I don't think. Um, let's see if we have to wait for him to come into the people. And yeah, he's definitely, definitely not logged on yet. Oh, found him. Here we go. Bear with me, he's going to be coming in now. We're getting him on the screen. Hello there. There we go. How are you, brother? Good to oh, connect. Oh, you're, you're looking crisp and you're sounding great. We love oh, this. That's good. Thanks, Max. So, nice to connect with you, brother. Congratulations on the work you did on this, uh, this uh, Epstein case as well. I was actually following your work when the case was ongoing, the Jelaine Maxwell thing, and you did a good job. So well done for that. Yep, got me kicked off YouTube twice, so I must be doing something <laughs> right. <laughs> as you do, brother, as you do. I've been kicked off everywhere, uh, everywhere. Oh, I'm dear. kicked off Patreon, I'm kicked off YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, SoundCloud, iHeart, iTunes, everywhere, everywhere. So, so where, are yeah. you, where are you existing now then? Uh, BitChute and Odyssey is about the only places you'll find me. I did get my Twitter account back a couple of months ago. I don't know why. Perhaps <laughs> they're gathering evidence or something, you know. <laughs> All right. So do you want to tell the viewers a little bit about you, Max? Um, just a researcher. Um, been trying to sort of wake the world up to the fact that the, uh, the world's run by criminals and we perhaps need to do something about it for quite a long time. And, um, yeah, just, just a researcher. Uh, I used to be a radio host. And just, just uh, a truth seeker like, like most of us, um, trying to wake the world up to the fact that uh, we're heading for a very bad place if we don't rein these criminals in power in and uh, do something about our situation. So what is your definition of the Great Reset? My definition of the Great Reset, well, it's, it's a restructuring of everything. It's a complete loss of all freedoms and rights and it's moving us into a completely controlled system whereby every aspect of your life will, will be controlled it's essentially economic social and intellectual slavery uh, going full bore coming for every country on earth and including every single human being and indeed every living creature on earth if we allow this to happen it's a it's a resetting of everything complete removal of the middle class as well You'll have the ruling elite and you'll have the serfs and then you'll have the wall of stupidity known as the police in the middle that will enforce the rule of the elite, the cacistocracy, as I like to call them. We shouldn't even really call them an elite, I don't think. They're really a cacistocracy. If you don't know what that word means, it's a, a cacistocracy is defined as governance by the worst elements of society who govern exclusively in their own interest and to the permanent detriment of all other classes. And that's what we've got. And uh, they're basically, we've got into a position now where those uh, parasites we have masquerading as politicians across the world believe that they've got themselves in the position now. People have got enough belief in the system 
that they can just roll this out and everyone will simply comply. And unfortunately, we're seeing a, a great deal of that happening, but uh, we're also seeing a lot of pushback, so that's a good thing. When did it start <clears throat> to get rolled out? Pardon? When did the Great Reset commence? When did what was it? Well, with, with the uh, scamdemic, with this pandemic, I mean, they've had it planned for quite a long time. But this whole pandemic, it's it's not about virus. It's about restructuring society. It's about getting people used to lockdown. Like they got everybody locked down, got them all locked away in their homes. They rolled out this whole five G grid, which isn't about communication. It's about surveillance. It's about yeah. Everything they've done is about surveillance. Everything they've done is about trapping us into this system. Where we're completely dependent upon it and it started with the uh with the rollout of this uh whole COVID pandemic in uh the beginning of 2020. okay and what is klaus schwab's role in this yeah well um if you, if you think of the world i mean I, I tend to think of the world as being one big holding company <clears throat> which is um masquerading as a system of international governments and nations each each nation is like a department store you know, and you've got this one group and they all work together. They're running a people farm. And every time they have these scenarios, even like the Epstein scenario that you were just talking about before, it's like a movie. You know, they've, they've, okay, they've caught Epstein, they've got Jelaine Maxwell. Now they've got to run the movie of the Epstein trial and the movie of the Jelaine Maxwell trial. And that's what they're doing with COVID. It's like the COVID movie. And you can think of Klaus Schwab as being the uh, director of the movie. It's like when you've got Warner Brothers, the company Warner Brothers, and they want to make a film like, for example, I worked on a film called Pitch Black with Vin Diesel years ago. It was made by Warner Brothers, but there was a smaller company called Platinum Pictures, which was put in place just for that film. And then after that the whole film was done, the, pit, the company dissolves, and so you've got no recourse. That's kind of like what the World Economic Forum is. It's kind of like the production company for the COVID movie. And CEO is like, uh, I mean, uh, Klaus Schwab is like the director of that movie. And once the whole COVID movie is put in place and the smart grid comes online, he'll kind of fade off into the background again. It'll be the same people that are running things from behind the scene. He's just a face they've put out there for us to hate so we can have our two minutes hate every day. I mean, anybody that we can see is not really in control. They're just playing a role. And his, his role is to be the director of the COVID movie and bring us into this grey reset and bring us into this new system where we'll own nothing and be happy and we'll all be eating insects and 3D printed meat. <laughs> what, what's, what's what was Fauci's role in the movie? Well, he's part of the same thing. He's the guy playing the doctor part. I mean, you've got to do everything he says. He's, he represents science, remember, according to him. He represents science. When you're talking about science, you're talking about Dr. Fauci. I mean, they've got to put these people in there to sell it, to sell the narrative to people, you know, the little guy in the white coat. Trust the guy in the butcher coat. The butcher coat, the guy in the butcher coat wants to look after you. You know, we've been taught this stuff. So, yeah, but it's all one thing. When you, when you really look at it and look at how the world's run, it's all one thing. The whole, whole show is one thing. And even with what you were talking about before, I mean, the reason the Epstein case is so covered up and the Maxwell case covered up is because what they were really doing there was running brownstone operations and compromising everybody who went into that house in Manhattan, everybody who went to the island, and all of these people are still in power. These are all the judges that let Jelaine Maxwell off. These are all the world leaders. These are all the Dr. Fauci's. These are all the people who are out there doing exactly what they're told to bring this whole great reset about because if they don't, well, they're going to expose them as being involved with children or whatever. They'll, they'll mysteriously die or whatever. So it's all one thing. I mean, I guarantee Fauci's on that on that list. I guarantee Fauci 
went to Epstein's house. I mean, they all did. That's why you'll never get any um, joy trying to get any type of remedy from the trial, the Epstein trial or the Jelaine Maxwell trial. We don't care that Jelaine Maxwell was, was you know, cru- uh, recruiting girls and the fact that it's, it's um, sexual trafficking or whatever. I mean, sure, that's what it was. But what we really care about is the people they were trafficked to the people that are all in positions of power all around the world, because that's who's running the Great Reset. And that's why everyone's just parroting the same line, doesn't matter what country you're in, because they're all in the same club and they're all compromised. Otherwise, they're not in that position. So do you think Joe Biden behaving like a babbling, stuffed corpse is waking people up to the reality of this movie? Oh, yes and no. Um, they're all babbling stuff courses when they get in there. I mean, look, look at look at George H. Or look at George W. Bush. Some of the eloquent speeches he made when he was the governor of Texas, and then when he gets to become president, he's saying he thinks the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And we know how hard it is for you to put food on your family. Mm. I mean, you can't even pretend to be this stupid. Joe Biden's there as a bumbling fool, so all the people can blame Joe Biden and blame the Democrats for the downfall of America. So it was his fault. This bumbling guy should be in a nursing home, which he should. I mean, he's a nursing home patient. He needs a note to walk into the room to even be told which chair to sit in. And we're supposed to believe this guy's the leader of the free world, you know. No, he's a puppet. It's a puppet show. The whole thing's a puppet show. But it's been put there, so there's an excuse. Oh, my God, look what happened to the United States. Wasn't our fault. Probably someone in my office. Oh, Joe Biden, look what he's done, you know. It's a it's a puppet show. The whole thing is theatre. I mean... Yeah, you can't even expect that Joe's making any decisions that are destroying the country. He doesn't even know what form he's signing half the time. And when he does, he doesn't even know who to give the pen to, you know? Yeah, I agree about Josh uh, Bush Jr.'s incompetence. But still, he had, you know, some supporters. But with Biden's behavior just being so far below anything I've ever seen any president ever do, Surely that's got to give us some hope that people are going to see through the Wizard of Oz's bloody curtain. Well, you know, the ones that do see through it, they're going, they're siding with Trump. What does that tell you? I mean, it's a puppet show. It's a puppet show. Trump Trump rolled out the vaccine. Trump's daughter's married to Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner says he wants to go smart. His generation is going to be the first generation to live forever. All pushing this great reset, all doing the same thing. As soon as Trump closed the borders in March, I said, here we go, two weeks to flatten the curve, no way. This is the, this is their big event. This is the, the big push for the big prison system they want to create. So, you know, people have got to understand that there is no, you know, both wings belong to the same bird, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, it doesn't matter. Now, sure, there's a little bit better ideas with the Democrats, but it never comes, I mean, with the Republicans, but it never comes to being. It's just there so that you've got that hope. So you think, oh, someone's going to be in there to do it for me. I'm never going to have to take responsibility for myself. That's what the whole political system's all about, you know. And, and yeah, I mean, Biden is, is next level. I think they're just laughing at us. They're just showing, you know, just showing how stupid the people are, how stupid the world's become, that they can actually do this. And people are complaining the elections were stolen and all. Nobody's done anything about it. I mean, we've got our Second Amendment. We're going to... We're, what are you doing about it? Your country was stolen years ago. You've got the Second Amendment in case the enemy ever got in the gate. The enemy got in the gate decades ago. You've done nothing about it. And what they've done with Biden is basically just slapped you in the face with a cream pie. I mean, and, and still nobody's doing anything about it. But it's again, it's to, to create that plausible deniability. It wasn't us, maybe someone in my office, you know? 
So where lies the real power then? Is it a cabal in the in the uh, English speaking or the, or the Western world? How? Because one of the viewers has asked the question as well. It ties into this. Um, is this cabal? Does it include Russia and China, or are they so, they're yeah. competing cabal? I think so as well. I mean, I think I think it does. I mean, the whole Russia, Ukraine, China thing. If you're going to bring down the United States and you're going to bring a social credit system into the United States, which is what they're doing to all of our countries, you, you've got to create plausible deniability. You've got to create a backstory under the threat of war. You've got to create an excuse for the food chain to be breaking down, for the dollar to be collapsing, all the things, you know, even the, the um, energy crisis. Oh, it's, it's Putin's fault for cutting off the gas supplies. Nothing we did, you know, it's all theatre. They've been incubating this social credit system in China for, for decades. I mean, when China kind of went capitalist, you know, it's kind of capitalist communist at the moment. It's still communist, but it's brought all of this glitz and glamour of the West in there. You've got more billionaires in China than just about anywhere else at the moment. So, you know, they brought this capitalist system in to make it attractive. And then they've, they've brought in this whole social credit system. They perfected it in China. They've been incubating that system there for a while. And they need to find a way to bring it out to the rest of the world. I mean, with what's going on in Ukraine, this whole situation in Donbass, Putin could have gone in there eight years ago and stopped that situation from happening. Why did he pick right now? Right now, when they need him to do it. Right now, to give Biden the excuse to lock him out of the um, world currency, which then causes all of the other countries around the earth to lose faith in the US ability to be able to run the world currency. Because if you're going to bring down the United States, you're never going to do it in an open war. The only reason the United States can maintain its position as a world superpower with the incredible amount of debt that it's in and the incredible amount of disunity in a lot of the country is because of its status as the world reserve currency. You've got to remove that status. And they've done that. They're doing that through this, this Ukrainian conflict. It's all theater. And then right on, on cue, China and Russia, they all get together and say, BRICS, we want to, which they tried 10 years ago and no one wanted. Now they're saying they're going to do it. You know, if you're going to transition the world, you've got to create this backstory, this theatre, the threat of the boogeyman. You know, it's the other governments. It's the other governments did it. Nothing to do with us. You need government to protect you. Well, who from? Well, from the other governments. And now people think that one of those governments is going to come along and protect us from government. It's all the one thing. It's one big puppet show and they all work together. They go to the United Nations and they close the doors. They put on a bit of a... Bit of a, a, a theatrics for the cameras and, and they scream at each other and then they close the doors and they all fly off to Epstein's Island and they make plans for what they're going to do for the rest of the year and who wants to be the enemy this year. That's what's going on. If people can't understand that we are the ones with the power, we are the ones that can change this through just refusing to comply with our own slavery. And, and you know, the last two years should have been given everybody the opportunity to really step back and just look at the world and look how this has gone in lockstep. How they've managed to go out and give all these injections to people, spin all of this rubbish to people, and it's all been complete rubbish. And then right on cue, threats of war, threats of this, threats. I was putting out a show like a, a month before the Ukraine thing happened and said, there's going to be a war because they're running out of steam. They're going to have to have a theatrical war somewhere. You know, like you can see what they're doing. And we are the ones with the power. It's just that we believe the governments are there to help us and that, that all of this stuff that's happening is incidental and it's different factions that are actually competing with each other. All they're doing is finding ways of playing the people off against each other so more power gets transferred to them. That's what it's all about. And that's what it's always been about. So what do you think they're going to do next, Max? Well, it depends on what we do. 
they're um they want to bring in this whole smart thing i mean they're, they're using weather they're using all sorts of things flooding out pakistan flooding out australia they're going to break down the food chain and and get everybody into a state of, of sheer um dependence upon government i mean what they're doing in the united states and in in the uk now even in the uk they're saying oh power shortages just as it's coming on to winter power shortages blame putin couldn't do that, couldn't have the power shortages, couldn't put your, your rents up, couldn't put your electricity bill up a thousand percent if it wasn't Putin going into Ukraine. And yet Putin's taking down the deep state, coming to save the world, really. You know, it's all right on cue. That's what they're going to try to do. They want to kill as many people as possible. And even if, if, if we can't kill you through that, well, come and sign up if you're in Canada. Just dial five, not a problem. Euthanasia is on speed dial now in the health services. If you check that out, you can ring up Health Canada and you can say, oh, do you want a doctor? Do you want mental health? You know, push five if you would like to talk about government-assisted suicide. It's on speed dial on their, on their menu options. So, yeah, they just want to kill as many people as possible by any means they can, but shift blame from themselves, putting up the power, putting up the power bill. Yeah, this, is, this is the plan, brother. This is the plan to wipe out. I mean, you saw the Georgia Guidestones. They want to get the population down to 500 million. I would suggest they probably destroyed them themselves as well because it was just too dang obvious what, what was going on. But that's the plan. Get the population down to a manageable amount of people and keep them fighting amongst each other and, and as much as they can while they're doing it. I mean, even this whole transgender thing that they're doing, you know, the whole LGBTQ, they're basically desexualizing children. They're getting pre kids talking about their sexuality from three to five years old convincing them that they don't want to be a, a woman or a man. They want to be something else. And then they're putting them on, on puberty blockers and things. So by the time they hit puberty, their organs will be atrophied. They'll be sterile. They won't be able to reproduce. It's a big, huge depopulation program that's going on here, brother. And when we come through the other side, they want everybody locked into this smart grid that they're setting up now using this Chinese social credit system. And the whole concept of cash is dirty and all sorts of things like this. I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty full on. And the only, the only thing that's going to stop it is if we, we step away from it, stop complying with it. Because yeah, they want us to fight and revolt because we don't have the weapons they've got. You know, as soon as we fight and revolt and start killing people, they lock it down into martial law and then they've got us. But we can step away from it as soon as we want. We can step away and stop complying with it. And, you know, and people think, well, I don't want to break the law. How can you possibly believe that any government that is currently sitting in, in power today is still working within the law? I mean, honestly, after what they've done to the country, look what they're doing in the Netherlands, look what they're doing in Germany, look what they've done in Australia, the, the brutality from the police, just the fact that they're pushing out this injection for a, a virus that's never been identified or proven to exist. It's not a vaccine, it's an injection. There's been hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people die from this jab. There is no government on earth that could claim to have maintained its validity through the last couple of years. Every one of these politicians is in abuse of office. Every one of them is in breach of trust. Every single one of them has abdicated their privilege to govern. Every single one of them. So you know, this is why even people that have been arrested in Australia now, they're dropping charges against them and all, because they've got no validity. The government itself on all of our countries has no validity anymore. It's about time we recognise that. We can say we want to stay within their law. You know, they've shown us that there is no law that exists on this earth. Look what just happened in the Epstein trial and the Maxwell trial. All the, nothing, nothing. It was a big puppet show. She goes to virtually a resort that you'll get let out of soon once the media storm dies down. You'll never get any of the people that were compromised who are still in power. 
And now they've rolled this genocide out under the guise of helping us and they want us to eat insects. This is, they're all in abusive office. They're all in breach of trust. It's time that people stood up for themselves. It's time for us all to become adults, Sean. You know, we leave school and we believe we need new parents and that's government. Well, these parents are in abusive office. They're in breach of trust. You've got no reason to comply with anything that they, they want you to do from this point. They've shown us that there is no law on this earth. So it's time, I think, we reestablish law ourselves. So I watched a video the other day about Canada. They said that some of the cities in Canada now, unknown cause has become the leading cause of death above cancer and other things. Mm. Uh, how, how could that be possible when Fauci told us that the vaccine was so safe? Yeah, well, he's, he's the face of science, after all. Yeah, unknown cause of death. This is the leading cause of death in Canada. You know what, what's right down on the, I think, number number six, the, the sixth leading cause of death in Canada now is euthanasia, government-assisted suicide. And they brought in new stuff like anything. You can, you know, like, uh, if you're depressed, if you're poor, not a problem, sign up for euthanasia. We'll take you out. So they get soldiers, send them overseas to murder other people. They come home, they're depressed, not a problem, we'll kill you. This is, this is what the Canadian government's become. It's crazy. And, you know, like I said, they just want people gone. They want as many people gone as possible. You're going to see so many people freeze over this uh, winter period in the UK because they're just reducing people's access to, to electricity and to power. People can't warm their homes. You know, blaming Russia, of course. Nothing to do with the, the government. Couldn't be anything they did. No, no, it's all the other people. Um, it's shocking, Sean. It's absolutely shocking. So yeah, the people have got to start looking after each other, realising that community... The word community comes from the common unity. We need to have common unity in our community. Help your neighbours, get to know the people around you, and you've all got to stand together against this criminal system and realise that it's it's not an elite, it's not an oligarchy, it's a cacistocracy, and their actions in the last two and a half years, through those actions, they've abdicated any privilege they had to govern. I won't even say right to govern. It's a privilege. To be elected and to put into that position, to, to be looking after Britain or whatever, is a privilege granted to you by the people. And you're supposed to be a public servant to serve the people. Well, the servants have taken over the mansion. They're stealing all the silverware. They're selling the furniture. And they got us living in the basement. And they're about to cut our fire wood supply so we can't heat ourselves. You know, it's about time. We, uh, we reclaimed our world. We, we really do. These parasites masquerading as politicians don't have anybody's interests at heart except themselves. And, you know, stop thinking we've, we've got other people coming to save us. Russia's going to come and save us. Putin's going to come and save us. Bad things are happening in all these countries to all these people. And just look at their track record. You know, the world is run by criminals, my friend. And it's become obvious at this point. And it's going to continue until we, we just say no. And this is what I've been encouraging on the radio for the last 15 years, trying to prevent this train from ever reaching the station. But now it's here. Um, you know, we're heading in for a really interesting time. It's not going to go back to the way it was. So we've got to decide what we want the future to be. And uh, this, is, this is the opportunity to do that. This is actually a huge opportunity for freedom. If we, can, uh, if we can see this, when all these governments are facing off against each other and all this stuff, it's time to realise these are different masters of slave pens and it's time for the slaves to just walk away from their masters altogether. You know, if you're living in China or you're living in any country and they're telling you to go and attack this other country, no, no, it's time to disobey those orders and to take out the people that gave you those orders to begin with and, and turn this world back into a place that supports human life because it's fast deteriorating miles and miles away from that objective. Yeah, and we're heading for a, a carbon neutral world. 
Now, we're all carbon-based life forms. So what does that look like? Well said. We've got a question coming. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so let's see. Um, I think this one might require a long answer. It's from Welch Nuggets. Does the Great Reset have any links to the potential extraterrestrial powers that has been mentioned by previous guests on this show? Look, I, I can't prove... I, these, are, these are places I don't go down because I can't prove anything. I can't prove where there's any extraterrestrials or any off-world whatevers, you know. Um, I would suggest that the mind behind this is not a human mind, though. Um, I've often speculated that, that AI is already in charge, that these resets happen cyclically. This has happened before. It's happened previously. And that the technology that we use now is not new technology. And, you know, when, when you look at the, the invention of the television, what, 60 years ago, 65 years ago or something, um, look what we've got now. This is like stuff out of science fiction. This just happened in the last 65 years. They were able to be, get these cell phones and all this sort of stuff. I think this technology already existed and they create a backstory again. Give us this, you know, tell us there was just an industrial revolution and blah, 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 and we built ourselves up to this in the last 100 years. I think the technology is already new. I think that this um, this reset is already planned. I think they've done it before. I think they do it time and time again. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, even when you look at the mind map from the World Economic Forum that goes down like 132 layers or something, there's no way that was created by a human mind. This is way too complex. They've got every contingency plan in place. Um, I think there's a lot more going on than people would believe. I mean, AI, moving souls into the mainframe, um, virtual realities. This is a big, long conversation we could have. But um, I would suggest that the mind behind this is not human. Absolutely. What it is, um, I, I can't say it's it's extraterrestrials or aliens or whatever because I have no first-hand knowledge. All I would be doing would be um, um, giving you my perspective on someone else's perspective and further muddying the waters uh, you know, in a topic I know nothing about. So, yeah. So do you think this globalist death cult looking to depopulate the earth would take us into world war or is that too risky for them? It'd be a theatrical world war. We've never had a world war. I mean, they have wars and make them look like wars. Even when you look at the, the last war, World War Two, the big war, um, it wasn't really a world war. It wasn't even really a war. I mean, you had Germany and the UK facing off against each other and well, not one bomb on Number 10 Downing Street, not one bomb on the palace, not one bomb on the Reichstag, not one bomb on Hitler's office. Bomb the cities to rubble. Let all Turn London to rubble. Turn Berlin to rubble. Turn Dresden to rubble three days after the war's finished. Same when they want to take out Syria. He's such a menace. You've know, got to take out Assad. Not one bomb on Assad's palace. Turn Palmyra to rubble. Turn Aleppo to rubble. Assad's nowhere near Palmyra or Aleppo, but hey... Do all that because then the people will think that there's a war going on and then the bank can lend them more money and rebuild their city. You know, um, wars wars uh, serve the purpose of putting the people in fear and making you think that you actually need the government to protect you from the other government that's doing all these terrible things. They all work together. You know, if, uh, if Putin and Biden want to go and have a war, put them both in a boxing ring and let them have their war. Um, I think uh, we'd, we'd get a very good success rate for the West out of that one. But, you know, um, it, it's it's theatre. It's theatre for the masses to make you believe you need government and to, to make you, you know, if you're not buying into the narrative that they're selling you, 
that there's a threat and all this stuff's going on, well, well, we'll just throw a few bombs on your country. Even with what's going on in Ukraine, I've seen film crews there filming people running through, setting the whole thing up. I've got people who live in Ukraine who say nothing's going on here. I've got other people who say, well, a few bombs going off here. But it's all theatre. The whole thing's theatre. There's never really been uh, a war as such that uh, it is based on the, what we were told it was based on. They're all based on false pretenses, and most of them are theatrical. Max, you are a mind-blowing, powerful speaker. I cannot thank you enough for coming on. It's been an absolute delight. Everyone in the chat is buzzing. Can you please tell the viewers where they can find you, support you, uh, and your remaining you know, existence online? <laughs> um, you can go to thecrowhouse.com. That's my website. Just click the face to enter, and you'll find the links to... Uh to my BitChute channel and my Odyssey channel and stuff there. There's nowhere you can support me. There's nowhere to subscribe. There's a there's a contribute page. You can actually make um, contributions, direct contributions into my Wise account, but that's the only way I can get any support from anybody these days. I've been literally shut down everywhere. So even, even when I left Australia, they shut down my bank accounts when I left Australia. So it's been very, very difficult to get this word out to people. But thanks for having me on, brother. I love your work. It was, uh, it was an honour to be invited onto your show. Oh, cheers, and I wish you all the best in what you're doing, and you're welcome back anytime, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Bye-bye. Good, good night. Bye. Wow, that was something else, wasn't it? Good grief. Max is strong, isn't he? Powerful. Just so well-researched. We're going to bring in Richard Grove next, and we're getting into 9-11. Right, let me just bear with me while I go in the chat. Oh, he's at the top of the chat. That was convenient. Here we come. I don't know if any of you saw the video I ever did on the 9-11 insider trading, the options. That was the thing that woke me up. It was 9-11 and Enron. Uh, um, you know, trading in the stock market myself. These are the things that woke me up to how the world really is run. Not how I was taught in school it was run. Not how the mainstream media had led me to believe it was run. Especially when the 9-11 insider option trading was headline news, then disappeared. And then it was traced back to ex-CIA. A bank run by ex-CIA. Right, I'm just going to reprompt Richard because we had a little bit of a freeze situation there. And I may have to refresh my screen now. Hold on a second, bear with me, please. I'm just going to refresh my screen. I'm back. Now, let me just try to bring Richard in again from scratch. Because it did something funny. Here we go. Reprompt. All right. He says he's invited. You can hardly hear Sean. What? How is my audio doing? Has my audio gone a bit funny? Joshua's saying it's okay. Fine here for gradders. I think you were just talking to yourself. Here we go. Did I get it to work? Yep. We got Richard in. Hey, man, how's it going? Whereabouts in the world are you? Sean, I'm in Connecticut, United States of America, and uh, 
today was like it was like the hardest meeting to ever join so i knew there was something waiting on the other side if i was to overcome the challenges and be persistent and i'm thankful to see your smiling face and be able to hear you clearly how you doing these illuminati bastards didn't want us to meet (laughs) i can see why especially after hearing max man he's just laying it down this is that that's a hard show to follow right there so what brought you on this path richard naivety and believe in my teachers <laughs> that was pretty much it i mean i believed also later in life wall street journal new york times cnn i've watched more hours of cnn than i would like to admit to over the years uh msnbc i've watched all the news channels i didn't really start thinking for myself till about 20 years ago or so um prior to that because i am older than 20 <laughs> uh i went to uh i grew up in western pennsylvania so uh like in the woods, it was pretty rural. And uh, I went to public school and I went through high school with a good GPA, hoping to go to college. And then from college, my plan was to get a degree and go out in the corporate world and uh, hit the big time. And I knew about a year into college that plan wasn't gonna work out. So while I was still going, I was already started with college, but I already knew that it wasn't really education that I was getting to go forward and thrive in the world. So uh, a couple years into college, I invested into a franchise and it taught me entrepreneur skills, um, hiring, firing, sales, marketing, all these good things. When I graduated college, it was actually that entrepreneur education that allowed me to go into the corporate world, become very successful. And uh, before I was 30, I used those skills I learned to earn a million dollars. Unfortunately, no one ever taught me how to budget or financial plan or anything. So I spent that money about as fast as I got it back then. And... um, I became a whistleblower in 2003 and I didn't know that was going to sacrifice my very lucrative career. But in hindsight, come on, these companies, if you blow the whistle on them, they're all together against everybody else on the planet. So you're going to be persona non grata. And then I applied my, my entrepreneur skills and my research skills. That's when I started getting into reading a lot of history books that no one ever talks about searching out first editions of the, artifacts and evidence of globalism, the new world order, they, them, those who would like to control the rest of uh, our lives and and delete freedom from our reality. And these were things that existed in reality, but weren't on the map that schooling gave me. And then a few years later, I discovered schooling's not really, it's not really an educational process, nor is it meant to be. It's the training and conditioning of interchangeable parts for globalism and internationalism. And uh, there's a lot of nonprofit foundations like the Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford Foundation that have dedicated their entire 20th century's work toward changing the attitudes, values, behaviors, and beliefs of Americans to be more in line with globalism, internationalism, people who would readily adopt climate change as a reason for a spike in heart attacks in kids, you know, these sort of things. So they dumbed us down to the point where people can't think straight. They can't make choices, decisions, judgments in their life. They have to believe in authority because otherwise, what would they be left to do? They don't know how to figure out uh, truth from fiction on their own. So they haven't been empowered with those gifts of philosophy. Philosophy originally is a method to find truth. And if with that method, you can start to use your five senses, gain a sense of reality, process it, remove the contradictions, share it with others, take actions that lead to non-contradictory results. That usually results in freedom, liberty, success, happiness for people. But they took those tools away, which is what you, you know, it's why we have what we have today. There's a huge failure to communicate because people are reacting 
they're going stimulus reaction, which is very much a form of slavery, instead of stimulus thinking, thoughtful response. So I try to help with uh, my work over the past 16 years to help people put the, the space back in between stimulus and reaction so they have time to think, to consider, and make thoughtful responses because I think the world that we want is a result of those types of things and not a result of people banging heads over right-left paradigm ideas. Wow. Were there some specific world events 20 years ago that was the catalyst for this change of thought? Yes, but the, uh, I'll note beforehand, the catalyst doesn't necessarily give you the solution. It just shows you the problem real big in your face, real up, up close in your face. Um, <clears throat> when I graduated college, I had a choice with my skill set. What, what I was trained to do through entrepreneurism is solve high-value problems. So I took my skill set to the marketplace. I said, who pays the most for high-value problem solving? Pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical salespeople get paid the most. I mean, they're just, it's, a, it's like they got it in the back of their car. It's a real drug dealer type of game, right? They're bribing doctors. I wanted nothing to do with that. I already knew enough then that those pharmaceuticals that I would be selling to these doctors, they could hurt people. They're not really like what they're sold to be. My other option was enterprise software sales, working with big corporations, helping their IT departments do what they need to do, database modeling tools, things like this, right? And so I chose software sales. So I was in that... Uh, career for probably seven years total. In the first couple years, it was just extreme success, blowing out my quotas, getting better offers from other companies. And so I never used my college degree to get a job. I got jobs through calling somebody on the phone and saying, I have this skill. Can we get a, can we do lunch? Can we have an interview? Right. Or somebody where I was working would call somebody, they had a friend in another company and I would get a call that's offering me like not double the money, but two thirds more money. So it was a good reason to move. So I'm working at companies like 18 months. I'm moving on. I end up in New York City. And um, the accounts I had at that time were the world's largest banks, financial services companies, insurance companies. Um, I had handled a whole bunch of other types of accounts prior to living in New York. Like I had Silicon Valley companies. I you know, had a, a career of different territories. But at that time, uh, it was a New York territory. So I have an account list. And so, uh, you know, what are we taught in college about these companies? They're just big insurance companies and banks to me, right? I don't know about the New World Order. I don't know about the Federal Reserve. I don't know about J.P. Morgan or Jekyll Island or any of these things. I ended up working um, for my the company I worked at was a 300-person company. It just went public. <clears throat> and they were selling like a $5,000 product. So it's hard for that company to get big deals together, right? So they were looking for a salesperson who could go out and find them a big fish. The big fish I found was a company called Marsh and McLennan Companies. So it's an international conglomerate uh, with a whole bunch of different companies under it. And the, the, the end result is they're the world's largest insurance brokerage and reinsurance brokerage to that, expect, to that extent. So it's not even just straight up insurance, it's insurance on insurance. So like, um, Derivatives are like bets on bets in the insurance world. So it was reinsurance. Marsha McLennan had two locations in New York. 1666 Avenue of the Americas was their headquarters, but all their IT stuff, all their computer stuff was in the World Trade Center. So we had a team there doing a project called Marsh.com. So it's World Trade Center one. It's 96 through 98th floors or what we're working on. And we got computer programmers there helping them out. Uh, that deal for my company 
brought in a million dollars in uh, software and about $5 million in services. Well, moving forward on that account, um, I ended up getting fired. So we closed or we, I got a verbal approval on a Monday. I went to work on a Tuesday. So I just closed, you know, on the phone. I got an approval for a $5 million deal, phase two, which is huge for my company. I went to work Tuesday morning, kind of being on top of the world, you know, and um, I got fired. So they said, uh, you know, Rich, today's not your lucky day. We're letting you go. Now, really, it is a lucky day. Otherwise, I probably would have been in the buildings that morning, still servicing that account. So that summer, I spent chilling. Like, I got fired. I didn't fight it. But I was interested. Like, what did I do to get fired? A person like me in my career, I had never been fired. I had never been fired from any job in my life. So I was a little curious. So I had gotten the documents that I had sent around the night before I got fired. And what I was saying was, we had just closed this other part of the deal. And where's the money that uh, you guys are charging the client already? So I, because we closed a new part of the deal, I felt bold enough to be like, you guys also owe us money for this other $5 million that aren't on our books. What are all these hours, right? And I sent timesheets with everyone's names and hours. That's the thing that likely got my boss's boss to fly in overnight and fire me the next morning. Not the fact that I closed a very lucrative deal for the company. So I had those documents and I wasn't really taking any action on them. And at the end of August, I had, an, I had a medical emergency. Now, for us in North America, when you get fired, they give you insurance called COBRA. And it kind of covers your, your health and medical insurance like 90 days after your termination date. And so I was just out of the hospital. I just had emergency surgery to save my life. I had a, my gallbladder ruptured, right? And they come to me, my former employer, who terminated me, who I already signed all sorts of agreements with, right? They came back to me and said, we would like to offer you $9,999 in exchange for confidentiality, and we will extend your COBRA insurance, and we will give you a reference letter from the CFO of this company so you can go anywhere you want and get a job, right? And I was still on painkillers at the time, so I was like, I signed it. But a couple of days later, I was like, what did I sign? What was that all about? Why not $10,000? Oh, because they would have to report it to their board of directors. They're a publicly traded company. So $9,999 is a very specific number, right? And it's all signed off by the CFO of the company. And I got a job offer about a week or two later. And that allowed me to be like, well, I want to find out the answers to these other questions. So I, during the job offer, I had taken that client I had a buddy, I mean, it's not really important, but I had a buddy who worked at a company we had worked together before. They needed a New York sales rep. I was not representing anybody at that point. I took him to Windows on the World Friday night before 9-11. And during that dinner, we had a couple cocktails. I made a phone call from inside at the house phone down to the sec secretary who represents Marsh. And I said, I've got these documents. I want to drop them off. So Monday, I got a voicemail back from her. And she says, hey, the word is drop these documents off. There's, there's a big meeting Tuesday morning at the World Trade Center. There's going to be a break in the meeting. You can drop them off during the break. And then these executives who are going to be fired can confront the other executives who are going to fire them, right? The executives who are going to do the firing, they weren't there that day, right? So I'm driving these documents down Tuesday morning. So context, he said. I lived on the Upper West Side of New York, 87th and Riverside. Tuesday, September 11th is a beautiful, 
like cloud-free morning. I'm driving down West Side Highway directly toward World Trade Center 1 and 2 the whole time. Like the whole drive is just south toward the trade centers. I'm in a convertible. I have the top down. So when I get down close to the trade centers and the red light, like I'm at, there's traffic. But usually when the red light changes, traffic moves a little bit. Traffic didn't move. And then I heard a cab beside me playing like some loud news report. So I turned it on. I'm like, something's going on. And then I look up and World Trade Center 1 has black smoke coming out of it. I'm like, what happened? And the radio tells me two, two things that morning. It was a Cessna. And I thought, well, I've looked in the, from the office down. I've seen planes and helicopters fly below our offices. So that's possible wind shear accident, you know. So they say both Cessna and then they have a report. It was a helicopter. And both of those kind of made sense. So I'm hanging out at the scene. The fire department's not there yet. There's nothing I can do, so I don't get out of the car. I take a left on Vesey Street, and I'm continuing to watch. And it's a tragic event, but I thought it was an accident. Until World Trade Center 2 blows up, up here to my right. And at the same time that that happens, there's uh, World Trade Center 6 right next to me. And I see these flashes go off in the building like at the same time, like they were, like they were synchronized, right? That just triggered my brain into a panic. And I was like, these are whatever's going on. It's not accidental. And I had never, I mean, fathomed the terrorist attack in New York. Although I had seen that movie, The Siege with Denzel Washington. Right. So like I had the idea of that from movies, but I never thought as an American, I'd be in the middle of a terrorist attack like that. I immediately headed north. I left the city through the Holland Tunnel. My plan was after dropping off those documents to go across the river to Red Bank where we had a buddy who had a beach house and it was the last week of the summer. So we were going to go there for the rest of the week. I did not go there because it was too early. We were meeting there like at noon. This is like 9am. So I headed down to my buddy's house in Princeton, the guys that were going to meet up at the beach house. And I went in and by the time I got there, I turned on a TV cause I couldn't explain what was going on. By then the Pentagon was hit on the way on the drive down there. I turned on the TV and we saw like the South tower. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any sense. I was trying to compute. And then a little bit later, it's North Tower. And in my brain, I'm like, because I've been in those buildings a lot. North Tower more than the South Tower. But I'd been to the South Tower. I'd been to the observation deck one time. Um, and working on a 96th floor of World Trade Center 1. I'm very familiar with how the elevators work. And they don't go all the way to the bottom. There's only one elevator in the whole place that goes all the way to the bottom. And the lobby's blown out on the opposite side of that elevator. So those are things I, f I can see, you know, I, I thought of that stuff later, but in the, the moment when I'm watching on TV that morning, my brain's like, that's 220 square acres of rebar reinforced concrete that just disappeared in like 20 seconds. Like there's, it, it didn't, if you watch skyscrapers coming down in China, there's a whole video, there's like 20 of them. They, they try to have it fall in their own footprint, and they always fall off to the side, even though these, those are planned demolitions in China. What happened on 9-11 is like, it's a multi-layered, not what the cover story advertises uh, event. So you got to look at it more scrutinizingly. And before you put evidence on the table and say this or this or this, I'm going to ask, what's the evidence? Where is it at? Where is it archived? Who tracked it? What's the chain of custody? Because there's a whole lot of stuff like the the proof of the, one of the hijackers, Satan al-Sakami, is because his passport survived the fireball and was found on the street. 
like it, you know so it's like the passport survives all of that but not okay, so you know there's and that's not just one thing and that's not any of the examples that led me to read a whole lot of books but when you look into any of these points uh, the the evidence should be like where is the evidence and do we believe that that was found like that you know so uh it taught me not to be so naive it taught me to read the uh, documents because these people who are doing these things they write about it beforehand you can read everyone knows about the project for a new american century document from 2000 there's a document two years before that that inspired that document so there's a whole chain of they would like to do these things catastrophic terrorism involving world trade center and osama bin laden and it's in council on foreign Rela relations foreign affairs november 1998 they got several articles. There's one on Osama bin Laden. There's one on catastrophic terrorism. The people who wrote catastrophic terrorism, John Deutsch, who was a drug smuggling guy accused from the CIA, Philip Zelikow, who was the administrator over the 9-11 commission report, and Ashton Carter, who became secretary of defense. So you have people who rise to power because of such things, but let's just blame it on people in caves over there and simplify the story because America doesn't need too much complexity to go to war. Wow, you've got me and all of the viewers absolutely mesmerized with this story and the level of detail you're giving us here. This is fantastic. Well, let's unmesmerize them because that's not the goal. Okay, well, <laughs> I want usually I bring uh, I bring the books. I got a book cam. I got all sorts of facts, evidence, artifacts of the New World Order, internationalism, how they subjugate us, and how we can become free of it. So let me be of more service than inadvertently mesmerizing them. I think mesmerizing people is important because it draws their attention to the goal. But let's continue with the Yeah, day. attention, interest, but then you got to deliver substance and meaning. That's where the relationship starts. Well, we've got plenty and of And the time. relationship is just between people and the world around them. Take us through the rest of the day because I'm curious as to what happened next. All right. So um, I didn't know about World Trade Center 7 until probably, you know, months afterwards i mean no one really looked at that that day i don't remember anyone talking about it right so after that day the city was closed i was in new jersey i think it was the bridges and tunnels were closed for two or three days by the time i went back to the city you could i mean you could smell the smell of death like from 20 miles away like in new jersey just driving there you can just smell burnt stuff human being stuff like it was just it was it was a stench it was a, it was not something that you wanted to be inhaling right and then there's people down there cleaning it up real time being told don't wear a mask don't wear a mask right so um i went to a lot of memorial services because at my client there were there were 320 uh people who were there that day in the building that worked for marsha mclennan so we had done a lot of business together over the years um and like a lot of uh, dinners and stuff like that right so when I went to some of these events and I saw people that were like, uh, not mourning, but that kind of like, just it, it put me in the mood of, is there something here that I'm missing other than maybe, you know, the insider trading. I found out about that like a month or so later. And when you started getting, you know, the answers didn't go back to what was these guys in a cave over there. It's like, no, it goes back to number three guy at CIA, Buzzy Krongard. And there's insider trading on Marsha McLennan and American Airlines. So that's very specific information of which airline is going to be claimed to fly into this part of the building that has this client, right? If you look at where the other building exploded, uh, World Trade Center 2, that's a um, fiduciary trust company. 
and you ask questions like, where was the CEO of the, of the company at that time? She was playing golf that morning with Warren Buffett his, at his last annual golf outing in Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska, where George W. Bush later has to go, right? And that's like, uh, is it, I don't know if it's SAC, Strategic Air Command Headquarters, but it's something like that. There's a huge military stronghold in that area. And when you're playing at Warren Buffett's golf tournament and you hear that your offices in the World Trade Center just got blown up, I bet whoever invited you to that tournament feels you owe them something for saving your life because a lot of other people didn't get that warning because they needed real people in those buildings to do the thing, you know, and the inspection of the insurance policies on the building that were so, so specific, the change of ownership that summer so that those insurance policies could be created and then cashed in years later for billions more than their investment. So there was a huge profiteering aspect and that goes on in many, many, many layers. The insider trading, the real estate part, um, the, the downloads of information that were being taken out of the trading floors of Cantor Fitzgerald and other companies. Like at the time of the attack, there was a hack attack that was pulling data out of that building and putting it into NATO and Belgium, uh, Brussels, Belgium. So there's a whole bunch of things that I asked, how did the hijackers do that? right? How did the hijackers have like 17 simultaneous war games going on that morning to confuse all of America's infrastructure so that they couldn't respond? How could NORAD, because of those drills, so I'm not saying it was still flying around, I'm going to say because of those drills, NORAD was confused as to whether, whether or not Flight 11 really terminated at the World Trade Center that morning because they reported it was still flying after the event. Now they were probably confused because of so many war games going on, but still that's a thing. There's confusion of identification of basic things on that morning. And I really had a lot of hope in the 9-11 commission report because I didn't know who Philip Zelikow was. I didn't know that he came to the commission with the outline for the conclusion already typed up. I didn't know those things. I didn't know he was a professional creator of public myths. That's like part of his thing if you check him out academically, right? So... 445 days after the event, they come out with this book. I read through the book. Well, actually, that day I downloaded it because I it was uh, July 22nd, 2004, I think it was, some, somewhere around there. And I read through the whole thing, and I was like, this is bullshit. This is like the Warren Commission. There's so many key facts and pieces of evidence that are just sanitized from their story in order to make it true, and any one of them would crack open the, the narrative or the, the myth that they're trying to create, right? So, so that's what, like I said, 2004. So then it's like, I'm in the midst of reading this stuff. I'm learning about it. I'm actively involved in a uh, litigation against, because I was a whistleblower. So I was a pro se litigant for three years because I was up against a multi-billion dollar company whose founder was the ambassador to Ireland for the United States of America. And he was Dick Cheney's biggest fundraiser. And the firm that I was up against by myself is a multi-billion dollar firm called Skadden Arps. And when the United States gets in trouble for narco-terrorism and all sorts of other dirty things, they call Skadden Arps to protect them. I went into court. I had legally attained evidence. I played it all. They couldn't, they couldn't retort or refute it. And I really thought I won. And then nine months later, they sent me a letter saying I lost. Right. So going through that phase, uh, I said, I'm not going back to the corporate world. I don't trust this whole legal, you know, there's supposed to be a net for whistleblowers. There's supposed to be protections, right? As an example, 
as a whistleblower under the federal regulation of Sarbanes-Oxley, I'm entitled to protection, which means if you are the VP of human resources or the VP of legal resources in the company, you're not allowed to terminate me. You have to protect me and investigate my case. I proved in court with their own people agreeing that they decided to terminate me on the day I blew the whistle. And it was the two specific people who are not allowed to do that. And they should, the, the penalty is two years in prison. Nobody got prison. They collect multi-million dollar paychecks every year to protect that company. Company's not going to sell them out. The whole whistleblowing process is an early warning system to that company to cover it up and excise you out of the picture. There's not journalists or media that want to cover it. I went to Lowell Bergman. I went to like every journalist and big attorney in this country. People are like, oh, Jerry Spence will help you. No, he won't. No, he won't. And you can have the goods and you can have legally attained audio recordings, hundreds of hours of these guys admitting it in their own words, and they don't care and you're not going to change their narrative. So it was with that realization, that loss of naivete that I was like, okay, I need to research things and publish on my own and just get the truth out there. And for 10 years or 12 years, probably I did that, you know, 80 hours a week and I did everything for free and it was all out there. And it's like, I need to do this because freedom's more important than profiting from it. I wasn't <laughs> uh, a father back then, you know, so I do things differently now because I've been doing it for so long. It's like I contributed, I sacrificed a multi-million dollar career and I gave everything away for 12 years. So now I do give stuff away for free, 15% of my time. And the other 85%, I service clients at our consulting company and I help students in our training program. So I deliver high value over here, but I still take a slice every week to do the Grand Theft World podcast, do real time deep dive analysis into current events. And that uh, complements my Peace Revolution historical deep dives for the 20th century. Wow. So I want to go over the 9-11 insider trading more slowly. Mm. Um, I don't know if you had an sure. introduction, but it was the 9-11 insider trading and Enron in particular that woke me up because I was working in the stock market and I was an options principal. So all I right, fully, so can, I so, fully understood the mechanics of it all. So the Enron and the Tyco International and Anderson Consulting were the big accounting frauds at the beginning of the 20, 21st century. So... Congress in 2002 said these things are very disruptive to our economy when these companies lie. So the, the deal was in the emails, it will say one thing, but like uh, they would take these emails out and delete them. And so now you can't see their dirty work. So Congress said we have to have a statute that prevents companies from deleting audit trail information so that they can be audited and you can actually see what goes on. Right. So if the FBI and SEC want to investigate the company has to turn over every email, every so it was called Sarbanes-Oxley, and there was also one for stock market was 17A4 regulation, SEC regulation. Both of them mandated that you had to use software in a write once, read many format, a worm format that would be preserved uh, as uh, a disaster recoveries for investigation. So the company I went to work for sold that product, which was mandated by every publicly traded company had to buy it. So when I'm when I'm helping these companies protect themselves and I find out that there's a back door into that program so people can nefariously delete stuff and that that's why that puts them at risk. It's like selling them a condom with a hole in it. They're not going to get the result they're expecting from that protection. So that's why I became a whistleblower because I specifically trained clients on how to blow the whistle 
under that product. And then I got violations of that very thing. So I knew about it. I had trained people on it. It was ironic that I had to blow the whistle under that statute. But after I had, it was the National Association of Securities Dealers that told me there was a back door in it. And the meeting I had the month before was with the chief general counsel of Tyco International. Her name was Valley Baudisano. She worked at like Pfizer. She had just cooked the books on some merger, she said, right? She's like, this is, so anyway, she says, you're trying to tell me how to keep all this information. And I'm like, two weeks into the company, I'm like, yeah, this is the, this is the thing you have to do. And she's like, I want to know how to delete this information without people seeing it. And I was like, record scratch. I'm like, what? Like, again, I'm from Western Pennsylvania. I might be a little naive. I thought people were more honest than that and they wouldn't say it out loud in a meeting. But one of my tech guys is like, oh, we could talk about that offline. So I was a little suspicious in July. But when I got to the August National Association of Securities Dealers meeting and they're like, we're not buying this because this is more like this is a dangerous thing that you're. And I'm like, "Okay." so then I took that back to management. I got a lot of pushback and resistance. Hey, don't worry about it. We know that, you know, they were selling it for another reason. And then the other reason I blew the whistle was because the company I worked for was being acquired by the company I eventually had to sue. Right. So a multi-billion dollar company was gobbling up a, a one dollar, a one billion dollar company. Right. And I thought they were getting ripped off because I'm like, they're only buying this company because we have this product, but this product has a, a vulnerability. They should know they're being taken advantage of. What I found through the process is no son, that's why we're buying it. So yeah, it's good lessons about how the real world works and the difference between ideals and actuality. It's epistemology. Okay. Can you explain how the options trading worked then. Oh, how, right, right, right. Thank you. How people. All right. So um, the reports, there was a whole bunch of different stocks that were traded, right? So not all these early stocks were participatory in 9-11. But in the week or two before the event, there were stock option puts, bets against certain companies. American Airlines, Marsh and McLennan, among them, Deutsche Bank, among them. So companies that might be adversely affected. So when those trades were investigated, they went back to a guy who used to work at Alex Brown, Deutsche Bank, who was also one of my clients when I worked at the place in 2001. Right. So I'm finding connections between the insider trading on one of my clients and it's being done at the place where number three from CIA is now hanging his private hat, right? So and then I investigated into, well, is uh, there's a couple of different studies on the insider trades. Let me give you some references first. The best book that gives you like the catalogs of this would be the 9-11 timeline by Paul Thompson. There's another nine, it's called the Terror Timeline. So it's a similar book. And then there's a, a book by... Professor Paul Zaremka called it's like all the news stories of 9-11 so in there you would see news stories on identification of various elements of 9-11 and part of that was 9-11 uh, uh, trading right uh, the other book would be Black 9-11 by Mark Gaffney and there's elements of my story in there because he talks about AIG and Marsha McLennan and the other corporate connections behind 9-11 that go beyond the insider trading. There was a University of Chicago study on insider trading by Professor Alan, I forget his last name. And uh, so 
there's a variety of sources to dig into. But that was just one of the things that I was like, how did the terrorists do that? So when you get a whole stack of how the terrorists do that questions, I started to question the actual narrative. And then when you answer like, well, <clears throat> these mostly Saudi extremist Muslim suicide bombers, very, very specific codec they got rolling there, right? Like uh, they were able to not only do the thing, but not puss out at the last minute and veer the plane. You know, there's a whole thing there, right? It's like it all just worked. Well, what's the relationship of uh, the Saudi family in the United States? What's the relationship of the bin Laden family in the Bush family, right? So when you start to see, oh, there's a group of people, Anglo-American people who have CIA, MI6 trained proxy forces that are specifically Arab proxy forces to be used in things like Operation Cyclone, where Osama bin Laden was used to fight the Soviets, right? So it just seemed very convenient that it went back to this place where it's like a, a firewall. You can't see behind Saudi Arabia because the British created the royal family of Saudi Arabia. They went to Ibn Saud and said, how do you like a kingdom? We're going to set you up. We want your oil, but we need you to be a front for it. So we act like, oh, it's not our fault. It's them over there. So there's a lot to any of the elements of the story. But the hijackers really lead you out quickly. Like uh, Daniel Hopsicker made uh, Mohammed Ada in the Venice Flying Circus. And he did. he's an investigative journalist. He went in and said, well, let's look at these hijackers. And where did they spend their time and their money prior to 9-11? Well, if they're doing blow and doing strip club type things, tells me they're probably not extremist, Islamist, terrorist types because the, the Islamic part would preclude the drinking and cocaine in girls. And the extremist part of Islam, it would be, it'd be they keep that stuff even further. It was uh, more like if the CIA and MI6 were grooming some people to run courier flights under diplomatic immunity, you know, like George W. Bush and James R. Bath, the bin Laden money manager and Bush's partner used to do. Right. So there's a history of this group of people to whom the rules don't apply, um, you know, call them kids of the non-elected elite running drugs and using their privilege. Right. So if you say, do these hijackers look more like people who could have got suckered onto planes with some offer? Or do they look like the guys that could infiltrate airport security and take down these military trained pilots and turn off the transponders and turn them back on, do all this other stuff in the midst of chaos? I don't know. And then once you start to stack up the history of, you know, MI6 and CIA, what have they been doing for the past 60 years? Have they ever done things like this before? You know, what is Operation Northwoods? You get into, oh, there's a group of people that are taxpayer funded and black market funded. And they're some of the biggest arms dealers in the world. And they're bringing you these narratives of how they go other places and take the resources. Like the study of 20th century. I agree with everything that Max was saying there at the end. The study of the 20th century isn't about like World War One, World War Two. It's like the, the empire needed resources here, so there's war here. The empire needed some lithium over here. They needed some uh, coal tan or coal, was it coal tar, coal tan from down here? And that's the story of empire. So it's always existed in human history, but we could turn it down from a spinal tap 11 to like a two if we all learned our rights and freedoms, learn some critical thinking so we can decentralize the disinformation decoding because they want us to believe the authorities and fact checkers really we just need to use what's between our ears to a higher potential so you made a documentary 9-11 synchronicity tell us about that oh that was my first podcast so i got into doing research i started reaching out to various uh, media personalities saying look i have 
from my perspective, seeing these things, these corporate connections, the 9-11, I don't know too much about globalism or new world order at that point, but I did know that these corporations had some CD business. And I knew that the people who had the insurance on those buildings had some. So I was just trying to say, look, you with the platform should look into this, Sean, and you should do something about it. And like after two years of doing that, I had uh, Maria Heller listen to it and she said, you know what? I need to play this, uh, you know, and publish it to the internet. And I was like, this isn't supposed to be for the internet. This is me telling you, you got something to do, go do it. And I'll be a listener. She's like, no, you need to be the change you want to see in the world. Like if you, if you see this needs to be done and no one else is doing it, this is what you should do. And so um, she put that out. And then I got a lot of feedback from that initial message, which was called project constellation, which is like the two hour version of what your first question answered was right. Uh, and that was the first episode in my 9-11 synchronicity podcast. So that was around 2006. So I did that series for three years. And then that was all contradictions of 9-11 for your consideration in a time capsule for the future. Because the way they control us is by not letting us know what happened in the past. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just take steps ahead of their plan. I'm going to seed the future with all this artifacts and evidence that they'd like to censor and, and inconveniently like uh, forget about it for you. If I bottle that up and put it out on the internet, uh, people can preserve it into the future and then you can hear back, right? So then my next series, Peace Revolution, is a study of history in the 20th century. It's all the stuff you never heard about any of these topics. So I did a 50th anniversary of JFK uh, back in like 2013. It's a 20-hour episode. And in that 20 hours, you're not going to hear much you've ever heard before. Like the first weapon on the scene, according to Dallas police, who had been, and this, this policeman had been to World War II, it's a German Mauser. It's not a man like a Carcano. There is no such rifle as a man liquor Carcano. They made it up. So there's all these things. It's like, that's how they assassinated the first head of state. And then that group has been in power ever since. And that's an Anglo-American Israeli globalist group. And they're intermingled to this point where you can't really separate them. And the way to, to win is to just put back what they took out to conquer us in the first place. Give people back the ability to learn anything. Give them a method. Here's that. Now you can creatively problem solve, you can communicate, you can get things done, you can make goals, you can have meetings, you can move the ball forward for freedom. But without that, everyone's just in a hypnotic daze towards some sort of smart device that is totally being controlled by the people who are doing the real things in the world. So are you so, hopeful, Richard? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a white pill optimist. <laughs> And I believe in people's capacity to learn, even on short notice, right? So... Uh, I keep it real because I can't be that smart today because I know how much more I've learned since yesterday, right? So I'm the learner. I'm engaged in life. I'm curious. I don't think I know the answers without looking. Um, I'm optimistic, uh, generally happy and not frustrated, though today getting to this meeting almost made me tangry, angry at the tech. I was like, what is going on? But I knew if I just uh, persisted, uh, it would flourish on the other side. So if people just had these general elements of absence of scarcity mindset there is scar scarcity in reality and we need the infinite mindset to be able to deal with the scarcity in reality and come up with new solutions when you start governing or limiting your mind to be like i can't think of these ideas i don't know or the i can't mentality that's learned helplessness and that keeps a lot of people stagnant and abused by the system just continuously right so if we can learn to be curious enough to ask questions and get into motion asking the question is the starting of thinking And once you start thinking, then everything becomes a little bit easier. And then moving forward, you can be optimistic because you know you can teach other people how to do what you learn for yourself. And we can pay it forward. 
So the people trying to destroy our freedom are trying to destroy it because they don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, it's very hard for them to destroy. They need us to participate in the destruction of our own freedom. And I say, stop giving the pricks the satisfaction and let's learn how to peacefully resist by knowing what the limit of our freedoms are and acting within it and defending others who encroach on it. And I think that's uh, intellectual self-defense, physical self-defense, and non-aggression are the triangle that make uh, freedom. So if people are plugged into technological distractions, how bad has the loss of human rights got to get to, to create a, a bigger reaction? Well, I bet right now in Germany, when they're cold, they're going to still have internet access. So just like during the pandemic, people might be discomforted. They, so if, if, the, if the globalists and internationalists just take away your comfort a little bit, all of a sudden people get interested in what's going on. So now there's going to be a whole bunch of people in one country who are directly paying attention to what's going on. It's like, wait, you're taking away our heat because of ESG? What is ESG? Oh, it's this whole idea that you know humanity is the enemy and we have to get rid of carbon and we have to enforce it through environmental social governance things and these corporations you get back to people are like, I just want to be fed and I want to be warm and I'm not going to do X, Y, Z anymore and, and capitulate. Um, I'm also an optimist having read the entirety of the Gulag archipelago <laughs> and like the first two thirds of that book set. It's really tough. But if you can make it to the third part and find out, oh, they discovered the end of their own oppression. Like when they would be assigned 10 years, they were taking it because it's not worth risking your life. But when they don't let you out after 10 years and they're assigning new people 25 years, then you're like, Fuck this. let's get out of here. And they learned how to resist. And the organs of government controlled them through stool pigeons. And they went in and eliminated all the stool pigeons and started running the camps. Today, there's not human beings that are being stool pigeons. It's our devices. So as people liberate themselves or start to use the devices more for their own benefit and less for their own withdrawal or, or liability, we're going to be in a healthier place. So. Yes, I use technology through my business all week. I'm, on, I'm online a lot. But what I'm doing is helping people together online to bring that back to their families, their communities, their, the, the real place that we all exist in all the time. So I try to use the technology knowing it has two edges, and I try to limit the use to those things. Right, we're getting near the end of the show. My battery's just run out. Hold on. Keep, keep, my audio's still going. Oh, here we go. It's come back. Um, <laughs> while I replace my battery, a question has come in from a viewer which is, given all the freedom references, what does Richard think of the presence of the Freedom Tower, now called One World Trade Center, on the New York City skyline? Is it a symbol of freedom or a reminder of a terrible event? It's a big middle finger to the rest of the world. Also, the 9-11 memorial on that site is basically two black hole abyss type things. I think it's also disingenuous to the people whose lives were ritually sacrificed on that day in that event. The proper thing to do with that property was to make it a commerce free zone that no dollar could ever be traded on those square acres. Again, I think it's 10 square acres, make the most expensive part of New York city, a place where no money, no real estate, no rent could ever be had again. And then you could honor those people's memory. But when you build new things, cause the, here's the thing, world trade center one and two, they were being downgraded in real estate from like a property to a C property. They didn't have modern internet capabilities. There's a whole bunch of things. You can't use cell phones very easily in there because the structure of the building doesn't let the signal go through. They were all like not, not halfway empty, but they were at least a third empty, both of them. They were having trouble getting rent in those buildings. They had a big problem. They needed to build new building in that place. And you know what? It's very expensive to take down those two buildings. 
I'm willing to bet that when they got the insurance back when they built those buildings, didn't somebody ask, how are you going to take them down in the future? And they had a plan and they showed them the plan and they said, go ahead and build those buildings. And we watched that plan happen that day because what you have is a big renovation project, a multi, like it's, it's a $10 billion renovation project that all got paid for by the American taxpayers and all this other stuff to rebuild, you know, clean it up and all that stuff. People's lives were sacrificed in the cleanup of their terrorist event. Right. So I don't like uh, the, yeah, it's not even called, they don't even call it the freedom town anymore. They, it was just kind of some propaganda to get people to embrace it at the beginning, but it doesn't represent freedom. And it was built by the people who were instrumental in the event. Have you watched this documentary from dust to dust and where it shows how Bush came in and said the air was clean and they brought some environmental woman in the air was clean and all Oh yeah. They're running Christine the, uh, from Whitman. She was a governor in New York and she's like, oh yeah, she was EPA for under Bush, but she used to be governor in New York, I think prior to that, or New Jersey, New Jersey. Yeah, they, the EPA, they all lied. They all lied to those firefighters and first responders and by all rights, nobody should have set foot down there because there weren't people to be recovered. Like if you look at the rescue effort, there's not a whole lot of people who survived any of those explosive deverticalizations. Let's put it that way, right? Um and they got, yeah, it was, it was not what they showed us in the cartoons or on the TV or in the official history of the event. Like any of the levels that you make it, it's like not accurate. But if you dig into any of those stories, there's a lot of interesting stuff behind there. You might find that companies that were involved like AIG, you know, they have the world's biggest private air force. And they might be a front for CIA if you look into who created AIG it was Cornelia Starr of OSS. And if you look up in the LA Times 2003, the secret insurance agent men, they'll tell you all about it, right? So there are these elements that are right outside the official story that are really interesting, but you're not going to get there from reading the 9-11 commission report because their job is to whitewash and hide and redact and to give you a narrative that seems palatable if you don't really study it. Because that's the majority of people. They don't have time to study it. So as long as they fool the majority of people on any given thing, they remain totally in control of uh, statecraft and foreign policy. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Richard. I wish you all the best with your mission. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and watch your stuff? I have a link tree, uh, forward slash Richard Grove. My podcast, Grand Theft World, is on Sunday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. We go for six or seven hours. I like long-form content too, Sean, see? And... Um, during the week, I teach autonomy students at getautonomy.info. Oh, well, I brought you guys something. Getautonomy.info forward slash Freedom Vault, because from there you can get into the 9-11 Synchronicity podcast, all the things I mentioned. You'd have free access. So get the Freedom Vault. Get the free access to Grand Theft World's membership. Draw all the value out of there, all my contents in there. Uh, getautonomy.info forward slash Freedom Vault. Did you say six or seven hours you're doing these things for? Oh, yeah. Sunday nights, man. From 9 p.m. till like 3 or 4 a.m. I hope you got a good chiropractor. And then uh, my Friday night lectures go from 9 p.m. till 3 or 4 a.m. And then my four-hour Q&A with students on Sunday is in the afternoon. That's the easiest one. But I do them all here from the standing desk. Holy so I just, uh, you know. Okay, standing. That's what I need, a bloody standing desk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been absolutely amazing, Richard. Again, cheers from London. I wish you all the best in what you're doing. Hey, thank, thank you, 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 and thank yeah, you, Ash, yeah. for helping to get me hooked up. That was that was great. And uh, thank you to everyone listening. 
because uh, I find it uh, a better world when we have our thinking caps on and we can talk about real things and reality substantially and meaningfully and move the ball forward for freedom. Definitely. So please go down in the description box and support Richard at all of his links. Cheers, mate. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Peace. Bye-bye. Wow. Such powerful speakers. Um, it's just, we've just been on a roll, haven't we? Max and Richard, what a double whammy. So hope you guys enjoyed that. It's 10 here in the UK. It's bedtime for me. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are in the world. Huge thank you to all the Patreons, especially for supporting the channel and the mission and everything we're doing here. And, you know, like Richard pointed, pointed out, the stories can be mesmerizing, but the point is, you know, to follow through and to try and make positive changes in the world, which is what we're doing here with our mission statement, which is to end the bloody war on drugs and take all that money and go after the predators. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. I will see all y'all next week. Cheers. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.